Well, it's that time of year when people start thinking about scary things and supernatural phenomenon. Some of my family and friends are binge-watching a variety of scary movies. Some have said that they're watching one scary movie a day all the way to Halloween. Even a theologian that I follow on Twitter asked his Twitter followers for spooky movie recommendations so he could get in on the action. Not long ago, a friend of mine was ordained as a priest. It was only one month ago. And he called me this past week to ask me a strange question. I answer the phone early in the morning, and he says, I want to know how much experience do you have in your ministry dealing with witches? And I mean actual witches. Witches that chant around altars. Witches that call on the dark side. Witches that connect with things that are occultish. He told me that in the last month, he has encountered three or four in his ministry. I told him, I've never had that experience before. The closest I could come to it was several years ago when we lived in South Mexico. We hired a Spanish tutor to teach our kids Spanish. And we only found out after the fact that the Spanish tutor's mother was a witch And she had opened up a clinic in the front of their house to invite people to come in so that she could practice her witchcraft and heal those people in their time of need. That was a strange experience. Those of you who've traveled to India and Africa and spent time in ministry efforts over there know full well that this sort of thing, this supernatural spiritualism, is as common over there as the air and the water. It's all around those people. It would seem unusual to them to have our experience where everything seems so natural and non-supernatural. And although things are changing in the United States, I think it's still safe to say that compared to India, compared to Africa, things here are still very different. In his book, The Unseen Realm, Michael Heisner makes the case that Quote, modern Christianity suffers from two serious shortcomings when it comes to the supernatural world. One, many Christians claim to believe in the supernatural, but think and live like skeptics. And then two, the church is bending under the weight of her own rationalism. He goes on to say, my contention is that if our theology really derives from the biblical text, we must reconsider our selective supernaturalism and recover a biblical theology of the unseen world. And to that, I want to say he's not wrong, which is another way of saying amen and amen. You see, all around us, people want to distance themselves from Christianity for a variety of reasons. Some of those reasons are more legitimate than others. Some are not legitimate at all. But we need to take seriously what they're saying and why they're leaving, why they're separating. A popular new creed that seems to be getting traction among more and more young and old people alike says, I am spiritual but not religious. I am spiritual, but not religious. That's something you've probably heard. You might have even said it yourselves. 
And whatever else that means, it has to include this meaning along with it. What they're getting at is, I believe that there is more going on in the world than meets the eye, but I don't trust the church to help me make sense of it. This is especially true of the church in America. Why? Because American Christians live like functional Sadducees. And if you don't know what a Sadducee is, hearken back to your Sunday school days and you will learn that they are sad, you see, because they don't believe in angels and spirits, the resurrection, the power of God. They are atheistic. They are humanistic. They have a natural, not a supernatural religion. They have a religion that is material, but not mystical. Many Christians in America are functional Sadducees. And why do I say that? I say it because they live and act like the Bible, the life, and the universe are all disenchanted and demythologized, that God is far away, he has nothing to do with our life, it's up to us to make our own way. And I say this about people who are even creedally and confessionally orthodox. We put so much confidence in ourselves and so little confidence in the Lord. Formerly, we believe in the power of God. We know that's the right thing to believe. It's the right answer on the exam. But functionally, we deny that power in our ordinary life. If you doubt the truth of all of this, if you say, you're not going to land any punches with me, I'm dodging all of these bullets, let's just do a quick exam in your own life. Consider your prayer life. Do you pray? And if you pray, do you pray like your life depends on prayer or do you pray like prayer depends on your life? Meaning, if you're not too busy, if you're not too tired, if you're not too distracted, you might make a little time to prayer. If there's a crisis, then you might pray. Functional Sadduceeism is a real danger, and we need to watch out for it. The book of 2 Kings, of all places, pushes back against this disenchantment. And it invites us to see that the God who made the world and everything in it infused the world with mystery and magic along with meaning. As the Catholic poet Gerard Manley Hopkins put it, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. So if we say we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life, but we act like we only believe in the human spirit, and if we say we believe in angels and archangels, but live like we really only believe in chance and circumstance, the problem is not out there somewhere. The problem is in here. The problem is with these eyes and the eyes of our hearts. We are blind and do not see. The problem is not the absence of light around us, but the inability to see the light. Why? Because our eyes are broken and need to be fixed. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In other words, Jesus said, look, I've come to... Flip tables and change everything around and make sure that changes come to bear on the world. 
Jesus prays in his ministry what we ought to pray in ours. That the eyes of our hearts may be opened. That we may be unblinded to see the unseen realities with true faith sight. Now, throughout 2 Kings, the veil between the seen and the unseen realms is shown to be more like a fine, beautiful lace than it is a thick, dark curtain. It's not the things of the unseen world. It's not that the things of the unseen world are breaking in or forcing their way into our world. It's that our eyes are being refitted to see the unseen realities of things that are already at work in our world. Creatures that are watching and serving and marching and flying all around us, even here and now, even in this moment. Second Kings remind us that we live in, a, in an enchanted world. And we get that as we look at the story before us. It comes out in a variety of ways, very subtle ways. Elisha the prophet appears to have some sort of telepathic powers. I say that only because from miles and miles away, he keeps hearing the secret plans of kings that are whispered in the privacy of their chambers. He's able to make axe heads float on water. He's able to raise children from the dead, and he's able to cleanse lepers. He's able to pray and open and close the eyes of the blind. He sees the unseen all around him. When the king of Syria sends a vast army with horses and chariots to the city of Dothan, the intent is to take the prophet captive. But why does he send so many people? It's because Elisha has a reputation for being a man with immense power. He is a man that is able to do things that no one else can do. And so here is the reinforcement. Go capture Elisha, but take all of these troops with you. Maybe that's just in case the king of Samaria says, no, 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 you're not taking my prophet anywhere. And there's conflict. Or maybe it's we're going to flex and show that we believe that technological power, that military strength is the way you move the world. We are going to get the prophet. But when they show up around the city, what does Elisha do? He keeps sipping his coffee, staring out over the walls, watching these military Armies exercise their maneuvers, watching them set up camp to bring their threats. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't sweat. He's not nervous. He doesn't fret one bit. Why? Because he sees the truth about reality. And the truth about reality is not found in the armies of the king of of Syria. The truth about reality is in the unseen things that they're not aware of. When his servant comes out and sees the vast number of soldiers and chariots and horses, he freaks out and he starts falling apart. And he says, alas, alas, what are we going to do? The sky is falling. Look at these armies. We are doomed. And Elisha, cool as a cucumber, says, don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And if you're in the shoes of the servant of Elisha, you might be wondering, how can you even say that? I mean, I'm not a mathematical genius, but I can count that they have more soldiers and horses and chariots than we do in our little town of Dothan. I can see that they have more than we do. So like us, the servant is acting as if the world is disenchanted. 
as if what you see is all you get. You ever been there? You ever done that? You ever felt that way? You might think of all the ways you've done it this past week. Maybe the ways you're gearing up to do it this week. All you have to do is look at the pressures in your life. Look at the tight spots you're in. Where your money's tight, your health ain't right, and your sight is lacking. You see, what's happening here is when we look at the world the wrong way, we don't see the unseen. All we see are the armies. All we see are the numbers. All we see is flesh and blood. So what does Elisha do? I love what he does here because he acts like a really good pastor. He does not shame the servant for not seeing correctly, for not seeing the unseen. He doesn't make him feel bad that he doesn't know more than he knows. He doesn't make fun of him. You know what he does? He prays for him. This is what a good pastor ought to do with his people. Oh, you don't see this? You, you don't see that there's more with us than are with them? Let's pray. God will make that clear to you. And he prays that the eyes of this servant will be opened. And he doesn't just want his eyes to be opened. He wants the blinders to be removed, the veil lifted, so that he can see unfiltered reality. And God answers his prayer by opening his eyes. And for the first time in the servant's life, he sees the real world. He sees the real world. And it's not the world of flesh and blood. It is the world of flesh and blood and spirit. It is the world that is inhabited by angels and archangels and chariots of fire and the horsemen of Israel, the armies of heaven. For you fans of the Netflix series Stranger Things, kudos, I salute you. Elisha, Elisha's servant was granted true sight. The special ability to see the ethereal plane, the upside down, if you will. And what he saw didn't just blow his mind, although it probably did. But what, it, what he saw calmed his heart because he realized that the prophet had told him the truth. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, the word more here doesn't mean more in number. could mean that, but that's not necessarily what it means. And we know that because it doesn't take very many of these horses and chariots of Israel to do the work they do. We know this because in the very next story over, if you want some afternoon reading, in the very next story over, you see that the Lord made the army of the Assyrians hear the sound of chariots and horses and the sound of a great army so that they said to one another, the king of Israel is up to something. We're in big trouble. And they flee away in the twilight and abandon their tents, their horses, their donkeys. They leave the camp as it was. They flee for their lives on the basis of simply hearing the sound of the chariots and the horsemen of heaven. And Elisha's servant saw them. And this is what he saw. One of the more mystical things that we find in the scriptures the servant saw the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. For the time being, for the moment, take my word on this, that what he saw was this. He saw the, he saw the prophet on the mountain of the Lord 
encircled by the same horses and chariots of fire that had come and carried away his master Elijah, caught up in the Spirit of God who delivered him into heaven. He saw the prophet of God, yes, walking on earth, but living in heaven. He lives in the overlap of the visible and the invisible. He is a man between worlds. God opened the eyes of the servant so that he saw what the psalmist saw in Psalm 68. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is in the sanctuary now. God opened his eyes and he saw what the prophet saw in Zechariah 1. I saw in the night and behold a man among the myrtle trees in the glen. And behind him were four horses. And I said, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these four horses and their angelic riders are the ones whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. God opened his eyes and he saw what the apostle saw. That our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That God makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire, that they are all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit eternal salvation. Sent out to serve you. Sent out to take care of you, to watch over you. They're sent out as God's messengers and ministers for the sake of his people. God opened the servant's eyes and he saw what the Lord Jesus Christ saw. The angels of little children, always beholding the face of the Father in heaven. And I want you little children to hear this. Listen, if you don't hear anything else, you need to know that you are not alone, that your angels gaze upon the face of God the Father for your sake. You are not alone. You're never alone. None of us is ever alone. The angels of God are all around us. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear God. Now, I know we're not accustomed to talking about these things, Because we live in a high-tech world and we've convinced ourselves that so much of life depends on us. But here we're finding comfort in knowing that we are not alone in this world. That those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Over the years, I've had the privilege to sit at the bedside of the dying and listen in on their conversations with those on the other side. And they say things like this. I hear singing. They're calling me home. Not yet. I can't come yet. I'm waiting on all the kids to come together. I can see it. Yes, I can see it. It's all right. It's all right. I want to see you, Lord. Did you see the man in white at the foot of my bed walking around my room? Is he coming? 
Is he coming? Come in. I'm ready. Now, why we have to wait until the end of life, why we want to wait till the end of life to see the unseen, I don't know. But what a gift of grace that whether sooner or later God comes to us and opens our eyes to let us see what was there all along. Maybe we were too busy, too distracted, too self-reliant to look for it. Are you watching? Are you looking? Do you want to see? It's interesting that the scriptures tell us that angels long to look into the gospel of grace. They want to see, they want to understand the things that you see and understand. How much more should we say? We want to look and see what they're up to as the ministers of God. In this life, angels guard you. And in the end, flights of angels will bear you up on their wings and sing you to your rest as they carry you home. In the story before us, 2 Kings 6, you notice a tension, don't you, between darkness and light, between blindness and sight. Those who do see, see, and those who see become blind. How? Because the power of God is at work through the power of prayer. Not only did Elisha ask God to open the eyes of his servant, but he also prayed that God would close the eyes of his enemies. So imagine this. You're part of this vast army marching across the plains, making your way to a city. All you have to do is capture one little prophet and you get to go back home. And all of a sudden you're struck with blindness on the edge of a battle. Your passion turns into panic. Your pride and prejudice turn into a puddle of tears. And a man comes out, an old man comes out to say, hey, hey, I can show you the way. You guys are lost. I can tell you're in the wrong place, but I can take you where you need to go and to the man you're looking for. And in all of those things, he told them the truth, but they didn't know who he was. And so they follow this man. And you can imagine that here they are, one minute, marching out to war, the next minute, stumbling around, groping to find their place in the world. And they're being led to safety, they hope, by an old man. And they get to where they're going, and their eyes are opened, and suddenly... They come out of the darkness and into the light, and it dawns on them that they are in the heart of enemy territory. They are in the presence of the king of their enemy. They are in the presence of the prophet that they have come to arrest and kill. And you know what went through their hearts. Alas, we're doomed. <laughs> Our life is forfeit. But then the unimaginable happened. It's in verse 23, if you want to look at it again. The king of Israel prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. What just happened? What just happened? What happened is the unimaginable. We see this act of amazing grace at work in this story. 
we see that the enemies of Israel have a sudden change of heart. And how did that come about? It came about through the kindness of the king. Instead of justice, they're shown mercy. Instead of killing them, he shows them kindness. Instead of punishing them, they're invited to a party in their honor. Instead of shaming them, they're seated at the king's table and celebrated. The kindness of God changes the world. So contrary to all those angry hellfire and brimstone preachers you might have heard in the course of your life, I want you to know the truth. The scriptures teach us that it is the kindness of God that leads to conversion. It is the kindness of God that opens eyes. It is the kindness of God that changes hearts. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. This story foreshadows for us in marvelous ways the gospel of God's grace. If you think about it, you'll see it. That what Elisha did for the servant and he did for the soldiers is what Jesus Christ did for Saul the Pharisee. Like the Syrian army, Saul goes out breathing threats and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He wants to arrest and punish and imprison as many as possible. And while he is on his way to a city where many of the followers of Jesus live and gather, Jesus confronts him on the road to the city. And what happens? At noon, in the middle of the day, a light brighter than the sun flashed all around him. He is engulfed in this glorious vision. And he falls to the ground, ruined. Like Elisha, Jesus has struck Saul blind. When he rises from the ground, he sees nothing. His eyes are dead. And even though his eyes are open, he sees nothing. He cannot perceive the light. And he spends the next three days fasting and praying, grieving over his life. He's so blind that he has to be led by the, by the hand into a city. And for three days he does not eat or drink until a man sent from God comes to him. It is a man that Saul had targeted for persecution. And that man, with the courage and conviction of the gospel, goes to the house where Saul was staying. And he stands beside him and he lays his hands on him and he says something unimaginable. Something unthinkable to someone like Saul. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. These are not the words that Saul expected to hear. He is a man of justice, he is a man who thinks in black and white terms. He is a man who knows that he is in the heart of enemy territory. And he expects a different kind of treatment. But what does he get? He gets the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ poured out upon his life. Poured into his heart. A balm to heal his wounded soul. 
something like scales fall from his eyes and he regains his sight. And now he sees the man that he had come to persecute, standing there, pastoring him, speaking to him and saying, Brother Saul, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. You will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you wait? Arise, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. It's in this moment that he realizes that the gospel is not just for all in a generic, abstract sense. The gospel is for me. It is for me. It's for my sins. It's for my brokenness. It's for me. And he rose and was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. He was enlightened by baptism. He was encouraged by communion. The sacraments are doing their work of grace in his life. And like the Syrian army, what does he do? He feasts with others who were born again from darkness to light. Others who were not punished for their sins, but pardoned. Others who were not shamed, but seated at the king's table. Not humiliated, but honored. No longer guilty, but grateful. This is Saul's conversion. Why? Because God's kindness leads to repentance. Jesus changes life. God's kindness leads to repentance. You know who said that? The Holy Spirit said that through Paul in the letter to the Romans. He wasn't writing some theological proposition. He's writing out of real life, blood, sweat, and tears, conversion. I know by experience that the kindness of God changes the world. This is what he says to us. Jesus had closed Saul's eyes, but he opened his ears. He broke his pride and fixed his heart. He shut the door on persecution and opened the door for proclamation. Saul is sent on mission to the nations with these words from Jesus. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness of night to the light of day, from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And we know that Saul obeyed the word of the Lord because we are gathered today around the table of the Lord, waiting in eager expectation to come take our place with the king and eat his feast. We have found a place in Christ among his people And we are just a few of the countless many who have testified by grace. I was lost in darkness, but I was found by the light. I was a slave to the world, the flesh, and the devil, but I was set free by the word made flesh and delivered. I was guilty and worthy of death, but now I'm innocent and worthy of life. And one thing I know, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. And therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising thee and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. 
Glory be to thee, O Lord Most High. Like Elisha, the Lord Jesus ascended on high, leading a host of captives in his train and giving gifts to men. Like Elisha's servant, we're reminded early and often, if God is willing, that God is not far away, but so close and so near, that he's not aloof and apathetic, but alive and active in our life and in our world. And like Saul, we need our eyes to be unblinded and opened anew. We need the scales to fall away so that we can see the beauty and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. And then, seeing with new eyes, we will participate in his mission for the life and the light of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.